compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. But this morning, we are actually continuing in our study of hell. We're going to leave for our virtual field trip. And before we jump into that, let me just uh, go ahead and tell you that if you look up the topic of hell and you look up descriptions of hell and you go to a library, you'll find there is a lot of them out there. Uh, Many of those descriptions were actually written in the Middle Ages and they're really sort of crazy and sort of scary. Uh, Let me just show you one of them. It's right on the top of your outline if you take that out. It says, this, the little child is in a red-hot oven. You like this already? Hear how he screams to come out. See, he turns and twists himself about in the fire. He beats his head against the roof of the oven and stamps his little feet upon the floor. God was very good to this little child. I read that and I'm like, this guy is really sick. Where did he come from? Well, actually, this was written by a Roman Catholic priest in the 19th century. It was his Sunday school material. Just so you know, he does not work in our church, and he's not allowed to work with our kids. Because this guy was intentionally, I think, trying to traumatize kids and torture kids so they would uh, be completely afraid of hell. In fact, that's just a small sampling of what you find. And most of the descriptions of what hell is like that come from the library of church history is pretty gory and pretty strange and pretty weird. It reads like bad science fiction. Another example would be coming from the book uh, called The Apocalypse of Peter. It was never accepted by the church as scripture. In fact, it was recognized right away by the early church as forgery. Nevertheless, uh, the mystery author of the Apocalypse of Peter took uh, part of that pseudo-gospel to write about the descriptions of what it was like in hell. And this is the way he described it. He said, people were hung by their tongues and flames were put beneath their feet. That if you were a murderer, you were thrown into a pit of evil reptiles who consistently ate you alive. Probably the most famous, though, comes from the 1300s. A man named Dante. Remember Dante and his divine comedy? It was a description of a trip to paradise that he was taken through as it was a trip through Hades and hell on the way to paradise. And he described hell this way. He said, hell is an inverted cone with nine levels on it. And on each level, there are demons and there are monsters that torture people. But on the lowest level is a frozen lake where Satan himself does all the personal torturing. Now, what are we to think about all these descriptions of hell that you can find throughout history? Many of them very sick and strange. Should we take them seriously? Should we just discount them and consider them bad science fiction? What should we do with these things? I'll tell you right up front what we can do. We can throw them all away. 
the reason we can throw them all away is because what they did is they began with maybe a hint of scriptural truth, then they left the Bible, and they launched out into flights of fancy with really sick and strange imaginations. And they end up leaving the Bible, so they're not teaching the Bible, which is why we can discard that. When we go on our guided tour of hell that we'll leave on in just a few moments, we will keep our finger in the text and try to restrain ourselves to what the Bible does say about the lake of fire, not use a bunch of fancy imagination to go beyond what it says. So uh, let's go ahead and leave for our virtual tour. What I would like to do is build our tour under two headings. They are number one, we're going to look at the environment of hell. And then we'll turn and look at what the Bible says about the experience of hell and those who go there. So let's go ahead and jump in the top of your outline. What is the environment of hell? Number one, hell is a literal place, not a state of mind. The Bible does not give us the dimensions of hell. It does not give us the temperature of hell. But that does not mean that hell is not a literal and, and real place. It's sort of a common belief by some people in academia to say hell can be a state of mind or a state of consciousness. It's not a real physical place. But I would disagree with that. And here's why. Remember earlier in the series, we studied the day of final judgment. We learned that on the day of final judgment, the souls that are still in Hades are taken out. And uh, their bodies are resurrected and they're judged by Jesus, body and soul joined together and then sent into the lake of fire. Well, if real bodies are sent into the lake of fire, hell could not be virtual reality. It's a literal lake of fire that they are sent to. So even though you can look up hell on Google Maps and it won't show up, That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The next thing we learn about the environment of hell. Hell is described as a garbage dump. Jesus' probably uh, most common way to describe hell is he uses the term Gehenna. And we learned earlier in this series that Gehenna is a description of the valley of Ben-Hinnon, which is the garbage dump that is just outside of Jerusalem. And he would say, you want to know what hell is like? Think about that garbage dump where it doesn't just have garbage in it, but is they would throw the bodies of dead animals and even dead people to be left to rot in the open sunlight. It was a place that when you dropped your garbage off, you dropped your garbage off and you ran to get out of there because it stunk. It was horrid. And Jesus says, that's what hell is like. It is a garbage dump. In fact, Jesus called it a garbage dump 11 times. Let me show you some of the places he does that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's actually the Greek word Gehenna, the garbage dump. Matthew 23, 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Which is actually the Greek word here, Gehenna, the garbage dump. Now I want to probe with you a little bit into what it must mean to have hell described as a 
garbage dump. Have you ever been to a garbage dump? What do you find around a garbage dump? You find things that at one time were useful, but they've completely failed in their purpose. Maybe there's a chair in a garbage dump, but you can't use it anymore. It's broken, and it's now officially beyond repair. So that's why it's thrown away. In the garbage dump, you can find expensive Ming Dynasty kind of vases that people spend all kinds of money on, but they're in pieces, and they are beyond repair. Describing hell as a garbage dump means that everyone who is in there has failed in the purpose that they were originally created for. And because they've rejected Jesus Christ, they are beyond repair. That's a very sobering way to think about the environment of hell. But that's what it is. It's the cosmic garbage dump of the universe. Another way the Bible describes the environment of hell, hell is described as a pit. Let me give you two uh, verses to, that point out that, in, that description. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. A pit is a place that people end up in where you want to get out, but you cannot get out. That's what happens when you fell into a pit. Or terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. And David describes uh, hell as a pit a, a little differently. He adds a little more color to this. David describes the pit of hell as a place that people actually dig the pit by their own evil deeds. Sort of like saying the greater their sin in this life, the greater the pit they fall into in hell for the next life. This is one of those verses that indicates hell is not a one-size-fits-all. But while hell's suffering is always eternal, it is just and fair. It is a response to people's sin. Look what it says. Psalm 7, 14 through 15. Behold, the wicked conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. When the scriptures describe hell as a pit, I think the main thing to grasp about, about that, it's a place where people, up, people end up in, but they have absolutely no way to escape. As I've been pondering this, I kept thinking about uh, what this would be like. And I kept thinking about the window wells in the back of our house. Some of you who have been over our house know that we have window wells on the lower level. And I, when I put them in, I didn't put them too high so things can get in there. And what happens in our house is uh, the kids will be in their bedrooms and they'll have the lights on. And there's a pond in the neighbor's property in the back. And the frogs will see the light. And what do they do? They come to the light. And even muskrats and other fur animals, they come to the light. And they get to the light and they go <laughs> into the window well. And here's the thing. If we don't get them out of the window well... They're not getting out of the window well. Try as they might. In fact, in the spring, what I end up doing is having to take out the dead carcasses because there is no escape from the pit. That's hell. 
There is no escape from the pit. Next way the Bible describes hell. Describes it as utter darkness. These are waterless springs, mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness, it says, has been reserved. Or in Jude, chapter, verse 13, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, most of us do not think of hell in terms of utter and complete darkness as being pitch black for eternity. But that is what the Bible describes. Hell is a place of utter and complete darkness. And Jesus uh, sort of teases this out and he gives us more information that is very helpful in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness... In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice how Jesus does not describe the darkness of hell as just darkness, but he calls it the outer darkness. Not just having darkness, but hell is the place of being darkness. It's not talking about just the place where is the absence of physical light, there's an absence of physical vision, physical beauty. Not just all that is absent, but it's the absence of moral light. It's complete and total moral darkness. Complete and total spiritual darkness. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about how people descend into sin. And when they persist in sin, God slowly takes away his, restraining, uh, his restraints from sin and lets them have more and more sin, which then further destroys them. Because the more sin they have, the more sin destroys them. And it seems like what hell is, it's a place where God takes away all of his restraining influence of sin. And can, sin can grow and bloom in all of its darkness. It's what makes hell such a horrid place, such a terrible place. That's the environment of hell. Utter darkness. Hell is also described, by the way, as fire. That's the most common description of it. 21 times the Bible describes the environment of hell as fire. Isaiah 30, 33 for a burning place, that's a topheth, has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it's made ready, its pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. Now, I put that, the, the Hebrew word, topheth, up there, a burning place. It's actually Arabic in its root. It literally means a fireplace. You could almost say that hell is God's fireplace. Let me show you a couple other uh, descriptions of hell as being a place of fire. Matthew 13, 49 and 50. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. Jude 7. 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Or Revelation 20, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we could spend uh, more time studying the idea of the fires of hell, and we're going to do that actually in the next point, but it suffice it to say that that is the most common description of hell given in the scriptures, which is a, a place of fire. One more uh, point on uh, hell's environment. Hell is a bad neighborhood. It really is a bad neighborhood. Sometimes people say, well, at least if I end up in hell, you know, I'll be there with my friends. Well, there's a lot of other people in there besides your friends. Like the scriptures say this about hell. Then he will say to those in his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, okay, your friends may be there, but it's also the same place as the devil and all the demons, which... If you thought your neighbor was demonically possessed before, your neighbor is literally demonically possessed now because it's filled with demons. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 also says this is the place where the beast and the false prophet will be. So you've got the worst neighborhood of all. And if you want to think about the human neighbors you'll have there, they're no better. Revelation 21 verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I mean, people pay good money not to live next to those kind of people. Yet that is what hell is described as. It's an environment of utter darkness. It's an environment of a complete and total garbage dump. It's an environment of a pit from which there is no escape. Now, what about the experience of those who are in hell? Keep your hands and feet inside of our virtual bus. We don't want you to get burned. Let's look at what the Bible says the experience of those in hell. Hell is to experience, is the experience of the undying worm. We find that in Mark chapter 9, 47 through 48. Then with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now maybe you've read that for years. You've wondered, what is this undying worm in hell? I think the answer to that is found in the pronoun. Notice it's not the undying worm. It is their undying worm. The undying worm is something that is personal to people. Not only is it personal, it's something that is working inside of people. That's what worms do. They work on the inside, not on the outside. So what would it be that is personal anguish that works on the inside of a person for all of eternity in hell? Many scholars believe this is what you would call your conscience. 
awareness of your sin and the guilt that goes with your sin. Now, you can go through suffering in this life, but if you've done nothing wrong, generally it really mitigates the suffering. An example of that would be in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, where the apostles were beaten for their witness for Christ. And they came out of that beating saying they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ because they had done nothing wrong. There was no guilty conscience that they had that was associated with any sin. They had done nothing wrong, so they could endure that physical pain. But imagine when you have done something wrong, and you know of your sin. Doesn't it start to eat you away on the inside? Tear you apart from the inside out, even though nobody can see it? Nobody else but you knows it? An example of this would be David. Remember David's sin with Bathsheba? He committed adultery with another man's wife, and then he bumped off Bathsheba's husband, had Uriah murdered. Nobody knew about it, at least at first, for quite some time. But he knew that he was a murderer. He knew that he was an adulterer, and it ate him alive from the inside out, the undying worm. Look what uh, the scriptures say. Psalm 51, David talks about this undying worm that was working inside of his life. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly with from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than slow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Look at the things he says. Blot out my transgressions. Take them away because what's happened for over a year, as he's known about this sin, he keeps replaying it in his mind again and again. His sin is tormenting him from the inside. He says, wash me and I will be clean. Because all this time, what does he feel? He feels filthy. He feels dirty. He feels rotten. He says, return joy and gladness to me. Because all this time, his conscience has taken away any way he can enjoy things and have gladness and in pleasure because he has a guilty conscience. And then he says, literally, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He is physically sick from the inside out, from the undying worm, the guilt of his conscience eating him alive. Now, this is the way David described the undying worm for one great act of sin in this life. Imagine eternity in hell where people have perfect recall of their sins for all of life. And their conscience eats them alive from the inside out for all of eternity. That's the way the scriptures describe the experience of hell. Hell is also described as the experience of 
never-ending shame and contempt. 600 years before Jesus, Daniel wrote this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, if you're like me, you've read that many times, but you never actually took the time to like, look up the word shame and look up the word contempt and see what it actually means. And I put some definitions down in your outline. Shame is not hating what you have done. It's hating, who you, it's hating what you have become. Shame is not hating what you've done. It's hating what you've become. It is self-hatred. It's look at me, what I've done with my life. I've ruined my life. Eternity of that self-hatred. And what about contempt? Contempt is finding something literally revolting or disgusting. Maybe some of you are like me. I do not do good with blood. I do not do good with guts. You know, if there's a major, like, car accident and there's blood and guts all over the road, I literally, bleh, you know, I just can't handle it. I'm not built that way. It's too revolting for me. If you understand what I mean by that feeling, that is the feeling that people will experience for all of eternity in the lake of fire. Some scholars believe that what has happened is um, that sin, not does it just fill you with shame for what you've become, but it transforms you and destroys you. Uh, the idea is maybe somebody was beautiful in this life, but the way they appear in the lake of fire for the next life is completely revolting and disgusting. Revolting and disgusting to them if they were able to look in the mirror. Look what it says in Isaiah that just seems to reinforce this idea. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Just literally revolting and disgusting. The next thing we learn about the experience of hell, hell is to experience solitary confinement. Now, I didn't put a verse down in here to underline that because I don't have a specific verse, but I can tell you that a number of theologians believe this is true. In this life, we experience something called God's common grace. God's common grace means that he is kind and sends his kindness on the good and the bad, the righteous and the evil. He provides food for all people even if they are sinning against him. He sends rain on the crops of the righteous and the unrighteous. It's just God's common grace to all people. But one of the greatest gifts of common grace that he gives us is relationships, isn't it? Friendships, family. They're so refreshing. But we learned earlier, hell is utter darkness. It's the absence of anything good. Hell is the complete absence of all of God's common grace. Which it seems to be means that hell is eternal, solitary confinement. All alone. It's what the scriptures seem to indicate. 
Hell is to experience total hopelessness. Proverbs 24, 19 through 20. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. Hope for the future is how we get through the troubles of this day, isn't it? Maybe the crop's not going well this year, but there's always hope for a better crop next year, isn't there? Maybe uh, you end up getting sick. Even you come down with cancer. What do people with cancer say? Well, I know that I'll get better in the future. I can look forward to better days. But hell is to experience complete and utter hopelessness where there is no such thing as a better day. There is no such thing as a brighter future. And as it says in Revelation, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night. All hope is taken away. Hell is to experience never-ending tears. Matthew 8, verse 12. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me just cover the weeping Sometimes, as we saw earlier, we see weeping and we think that's sobbing. The Greek word here is very strong. This is wailing and utter tears and brokenness. What does it mean by gnashing teeth? Gnashing teeth means hell is to experience unrestrained anger. Now, where do I get that from? Acts tells us this. Acts chapter 7, verse 54 when they heard these things, they were enraged, filled with anger, and they ground their teeth at him. They gnashed their teeth in rage. In hell, those in hell experience unrestrained anger at themselves, anger at Satan, anger at God, just complete anger. And also this, hell is to experience fire. Now, we covered this earlier in the environment section, but I didn't delve into this, so let me take the time to do that right now. Is this a literal fire or a symbolic fire? Where does the fire come from? How does the fire keep burning? These are the questions we're going to answer. I think to understand this, we need to begin to redefine what many of us think about hell. We often think that God and Jesus are in heaven, and hell is the one place, or the lake of fire is the one place where God and Jesus do not exist. And that is not true. Look what the scriptures say. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 8. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now, earlier in the the series, we learned about Sheol. Sheol is the Old Testament term for the grave. He says, no matter where I go, even in death, I cannot get away from God's presence. Even if I would be able to go to the lake of fire, I would not be able to get away from God's presence. God is just as much present in hell, the lake of fire, as he is in heaven. 
Most of us don't realize that. Look what it says about the fires of hell in Isaiah. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. The fires of hell are not lit by remote control. They are lit by the very breath of the presence of God. God is the one, and it is his presence that ignites the fire, and his presence sustains the fire. Some of you who are biblically savvy, we remember things like Matthew 25, where it says, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And you say, well, doesn't it say there that um, God has just sent everyone to hell to depart from him? You just told me that God is just as present in hell as he is in heaven. What does that mean? How can God say, depart from me? Here's the answer. We often think in terms of spatial distance. When the Bible says, depart from me, it's talking in terms of relational distance, not spatial distance. You cannot go to a place where God is not present. But this is saying the relationship with God, his grace, his mercy, his love has ceased when all of a sudden you are in hell. So, in hell, the wrath of God is released in exactly the way sin deserved. Now, you need to understand that God is described many times as fire in the scriptures. For instance, what does it say in Hebrews chapter 12, 29? Our God is a consuming fire. It says the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. It says this, that fire is a response to God up for sin in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. So the Bible's most frequent description of hell is of fire, and it's the fire of God's wrath finally being revealed against sin. Now I have good news for you. Hell may be a terrible environment with a terrible experience, but not one person in this room has to go there. The Bible's message is that God loves you. He loves you more than you can ever get your mind wrapped around. That is why he sent his own son to die in your place for your sin. So none of us has to spend eternity in hell. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
This morning, I don't know if you were just here sort of checking out Jesus and checking out the church, but I beg of you, I beg of you, confess your sin, repent of your sin, turn to Jesus Christ. It'll change your eternity. The Bible says that for those who have turned to Jesus Christ, instead of the lake of fire that we've just described, we are brought to experience God's new creation. And what is the environment of the new creation? Revelation 21 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. The lake of fire is solid mourning, crying, and pain. The new creation is the complete absence of mourning, crying, and pain. All because of Jesus. And God loves you. And he sent Jesus to die for you. We have such a good Savior. What is the experience of the new creation? Now that we've looked at the environment of the new creation, this is the experience And you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is no sadness, no mourning in the new creation. In fact, you are with the very fountainhead of joy, the one who has created joy, the very presence of the one who has made joy. My friends, it cannot be any better in the new creation than it is through Jesus. Now you may wonder, what should we do with all this? Now that we've had a guided tour of hell and we've seen what the new creation in heaven is like, there's two things that I really hope you would take home from this series that would really change the way you look at life. And I put them in your application here. Number one, now that we know what Jesus has saved us from, love him more. I really hope you love Jesus more. So often we talk about Jesus saving us from our sin, but we've never really explored or thought about the hell that he has saved us from. Hell is horrid. Hell is terrible. But God is good. Jesus is great. He saved us. Love him more. And the second thing is this. Now that we know where everybody apart from Jesus is headed, speak about Jesus with greater boldness. In our culture, we're under a lot of pressure not to talk about Jesus, to keep quiet about Jesus. But folks, apart from Jesus, everybody, everybody without exception, is headed to the lake of fire. Today, you know what their future holds. But as Christians, we also can tell them about Jesus to save them from a terrible future. We can't force anyone to accept Jesus. But we certainly can tell people about Jesus and beg with them and plead with them to trust in Christ, be born again, and have it be the most incredible change that their life will ever see. This morning, we're going to close by um, celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And as the elements are passed, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take as you hold the bread and hold the cup, and I want you to talk to Jesus in your heart.
And I want you to thank him. Jesus, thank you for saving me from hell. Thank you for saving me from the lake of fire that I fully deserve and giving me a wonderful eternity in heaven that I don't deserve. Praise him and worship him as you hold the bread and the cup. Praise him from the bottom of your hearts. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this chance we had to do a guided tour of hell. I want to confess that uh, I may be 52 years old, but I've never taken the time to actually look at hell in depth and to see what you've saved us from. Jesus, thank you for being so good. Thank you for taking us from utter darkness and bringing us to complete and total light. Thank you for saving us in a way that none of us deserve. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.